This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 625. And the quote of the day is, we learn something from everyone who passes through our lives. Some lessons are painful, some lessons are painless, but all lessons are priceless. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 625, and I hope you're doing well. And again, I appreciate, um, I've gotten emails about the website, and if you haven't already, I know it's kind of old news, but check out the website because a lot of people are telling me it's easier to listen to the podcast on the website than doing it through a podcast app or something like that. Let me rephrase that. It's easier to find episodes on the website, and then you can just figure out which one you want to listen to, and then you can queue them up in your podcast app. So just check out drummersresource.com and let me know what you think about that. And now let's get into this episode with Mr. George Flutus. And George is a Chicago native, grew up as the son of a musician, and really learned the lineage of jazz while he was coming up, but also had this sort of duality and and also loved John Bonham and rock and roll and things like that. So a really amazing career that he that he's carved out for himself. And he's worked with a slew of people, including Buddy Montgomery and Lou Donaldson and Frank West and Phil Woods and Junior Cook and Joey DeFrancesco and a long list of other jazz luminaries. And you want to talk about a quintessential professional jazz drummer george is your guy but he can also rock some john bonham like the best of them and he actually has a a youtube site that he does just john bonham stuff on as well so we talk about all that and more so let's not waste any more time let's get into it with george flutus George, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for asking me to come on. Thank you so much for for being a part of this. It's I love doing I love going back and like, you know, doing research on the person that's coming on and and seeing the people that they played with and and uh, you know, seeing where where there's connections and it's always interesting to find that like, oh, you you know, you have mutual friends or you've played with the same people or different things like that. Uh one I'd mentioned, you know, Joey D Francesco, um and that, you know, I sort of cut my teeth listening to them and, and try, try, em, trying to emulate them, really. Like, just that whole family is a, is a musical family. Um, yeah. but, but one of the things while I, was doing, while I was doing the research is, like, I feel like you, you're like two different people, right? So you have, you're a world-class jazz player. I know where you're with this <laughs> you know where i'm going with the other side of it with yeah. like john bonham right right but i would argue that that john bonham to me was a jazz drummer like that's how i think of him which it sounds crazy and people are going to be like what the hell is nick talking about but i like that's how i feel uh-huh. how, do you, how do you feel about that because you're the expert on both sides well so how do you, you know, feel about that i give pause there because the fact is you know he didn't really play with what one would, um, I guess, normally uh, associate, you know, as jazz artists or play, you know, swing in music, basically. Although he did swing, 
you know, he had he had a a, a very swinging concept in the way he played. Um, but I know what you mean because he always played in the moment. He didn't um, necessarily play the same way on on each tune, especially, you know, performing live. Um, he was very, he was just a very in the moment improvisational type of player mm-hmm. who was very responsive to what was going on around him. So, you know, like the greatest jazz drummers will do, they initiate and they also react and respond. And I, I always think of Bonzo as being one of the greatest um well, in my opinion, he's the greatest rock drummer, but um, he's just one of the greatest drummers, period, because of this combination of sound, feel, um, you know, the attitude in his playing, his touch, his technique, um, his creativity. So all of these things I think he had in such abundant measure. And like the greatest jazz drummers, my favorite jazz drummers, that was being that was always exemplified in every performance you know he was he was rarely the type of rock drummer that just plays a beat to the song and start to finish you know it's pretty similar a couple fills and then that's it like he was always adding you know something in the moment that was reacting or responding to what's what you know jimmy's playing in his solos or um or you know initiating real creative kind of um you know, ideas mm-hmm. throughout the course of the song. Um, as far as like being a jazz drummer, though, you know, it's it's funny because the setup, the tuning, um, you know, a lot of the technique that he employed, you know, Bonzo liked to use a lot of um, paradiddle diddles and mm-hmm. double stroke and paradiddle type ideas, you know, basic rudimental stuff, but the kind of stuff that you associate, I guess, more with jazz drummers than quintessential rock drummers mm-hmm. and, and just so everyone who's listening is clear i'm not thinking like i'm not thinking bonzo was actually playing jazz or right. or you know i'm not like art blakely uh <laughs> bonzo i'm not i'm not saying that but but i don't think that i don't think that art blakey and john bonham are that far apart from each other is what i'm trying to say like in terms of in terms of approach and where what his influences were and and the way that he approached the drums and things like that because i'm sure i'll get an email about it that are like nick's dumb and he thinks that john bonham is a, is a jazz drummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's no mistake on my part i totally understand what you're saying and that is a really important aspect is that you know, there's it, it's it's informed, I think, by the same sense of musicality, you know, of the drums mm-hmm. being a musical, uh, not just providing rhythm, but providing, you know, such an important musical aspect to the overall music. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as far as his influences go, there's not a whole lot of interviews or you know, direct quotes from him about who his influences were. I mean, there's some, you know, he mentioned uh, Krupa, of course, at one point, And I think he, I don't even know if he mentioned in, if he's quoted as talking about Max Roach or Art Blakey mm-hmm. or Elvin, you know. But to me, it's clear you really hear those elements in his playing, in addition, of course, to Joe Morello, who I think had 
a big influence. But then again, you think about those drummers, those are all like the greatest drummers of the era that if you started playing drums almost in no matter what genre, you're going to know about Art Blakey. You're going to know about right. Rich. You're going to know about Gene Krupa, Morello, you know, even, you know, if you, and then if you're serious about it, you're going to know who Philly Joe Jones is and Max Roach is. And, you know, that's not to say he's like deeply studied, you know, I doubt he was deeply, deeply studying the records of those right. people. But I think for someone who has a real natural gift, like he did, um, just hearing enough and who knows, he might've seen some people in England when he was young, like Elvin or Art Blakey's messengers. We don't know that, you know, for mm-hmm. I just right. that that's like part of the common drum culture, you know, the sound, the language. And right. and um, yeah, I mean, I it, it's funny because I've heard other people say that and I've seen people make those comments, you know, like on the YouTube channel, they'll say, you know, Bonham was a jazz drummer. And, you know, you could take that two ways. You say, you know, well, no, of course he wasn't a jazz drummer because he didn't play with, an, you know, a guy playing an acoustic bass and musicians playing a traditional, you know, jazz trio and he's right. swinging. But I totally understand and agree with what you're talking about, about conceptually. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, certainly not just the run of the mill, you know, <laughs> rock stylist. And right. that's to put down any rock stylists, you know, mm-hmm. saying like, and I think that was also part of the common culture in England at that time for drummers, Ginger Baker, um, Mitch Mitchell, you know, these guys, Ian Pace, mm-hmm. they were clearly listening to jazz drummers and even their setups, you know, reflected that. Usually yep. one up, two down. I mean, in Ginger's case, he had a double bass drum setup, but the cymbal set up kind of like the classic Sonny Payne, you know, mm-hmm. set up. Jimmy Page is quoted as saying Bonzo loved Sonny Payne. Oh, really? Yeah. And I always thought before I read that quote, that really stuck out to me because I always thought the way he sets up fills the sound of the bass drum. There are a lot of things that I associate when I hear it. I go, damn, that sounds like something Sonny Payne would have played. I feel like Sonny's name doesn't get thrown into the mix as much as it should. Oh, yeah, I agree. You know, it's in my mix because he's one of my favorite of all time. And when I me too. I play big band often here in Chicago and Sonny is, is definitely at the top of my big band drummer list. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I, mean, I love Mel Lewis, of course, and I love S- Sam Woodyard and I love all the greats, you know, Buddy and Krupa are just like their icons on their own. Right. But as far as like the, the real influence in my playing, like when I'm playing, I have to be conscious of like saying, okay, I can't, I'm not going to, too obviously derivative because you know <laughs> I need to be me. But just, right. you know, if you're playing a bassy chart, it's so hard to not reference Sonny Payne's style. Sure, you know he's sure. one of my favorites, and I always thought that about. And I think you know there's something especially about the way Sonny used the bass drum, got under the band, and his timing. You know that ultra hip sen- timing, sense of space, and then the big wallop, and that's totally Bonham to me. Mm-hmm. And when yep. I read that quote from Jimmy Page saying that he loved Sonny Payne and the Count Basie band, you know, that wasn't just like some, uh, um, you know, I didn't imagine that that was, that was an actual quote. And I thought perfect. It makes perfect sense. You know, cause yeah. I, always, I always heard that. Yeah. When, when you talk about, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought about what you were saying about, about Sonny Payne 
And oh, oh, you, you were saying about when you're playing a bassy tune and not trying to reference Sonny Payne too much. And so you're not trying to sort of copy and paste. That's always the question that I think is really hard to answer or, or to put into practice is how do you learn from all of these great drummers and then not sound like them? Or how do you get the stuff that you're learning from them to work its way into your playing without being a direct, like you said, a derivative of them or just a copy and paste of just saying, oh, I'm going to play their licks. And I think that's a really hard thing to do. And I think that that yeah. it takes a maturity uh, over the years to really figure out how to how to learn from others and 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 add it to your sort of your toolbox, for lack of a better word. Yeah, your arsenal, I call yeah. it. Um, that's a great question. And actually, I hope I'm not um, too inarticulate at at responding, but I've got a lot of thoughts on that. And over the years, I've thought about that a lot, actually, because um, first of all, it's just fun to play like the, your influences. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it is. Like, I really enjoy playing Philly Joe language or Max language or Blakey language or, you know, all of my favorites. On the other hand, I'm a pale comparison, <laughs> you know, right. to, to the real deal. Um, so in reality, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I have to check myself too. Sometimes like I used to play with Cedar Walton quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the great pianist for those who aren't familiar, uh, legendary pianist who played with Art Blakey's messengers and, uh, one of the greatest composers and band leaders in his own right. And, um, you know, an iconic piano trio with, with, uh, Billy Higgins on drums and different bass players, but usually David Williams on bass uh, before it was Ron Carter, and but many other bass players as well. But primarily Billy Higgins was the drummer after a certain point in the 70s. Lewis Hayes played with him quite a lot before that. And, you know, when I first started playing with Cedar, I found that the arrangements are very specific. You know, Cedar's song, mm-hmm. very specific, the way they're arranged. There's a lot of um, distinguishing characteristics, let's say, you know, so there's a lot of little setups. There's a lot of opportunity to play things and put fills into these phrases. Right. And after years of listening to Cedar's music, I'm hearing the way Billy Higgins would set up these figures or the way right. he play an arrangement, simply put it that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, here I am coming in now play, I'm in this, 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 um, position, you know, of like, how do I play this music without copying or referencing, you know, the way Billy Higgins played it, when it's almost like so much part of the arrangement, you know, like his fills are like, they're they're almost like as integral as as the actual song. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember feeling kind of, you know, almost like a little insecure about it you know when i first started playing with him like i don't want to be corny or sound corny like i'm throwing in some billy higgins something that's obviously on the other hand on the other hand the music you know like i was saying it's so it's so defined by that trio had such a distinctive and defined sound that you can't help but not play what billy would play in a certain break I got to imagine there's sort of a, a dichotomy going on in your head where you're like, I don't want to play 
the Billy Higgins stuff. But on the flip side, I don't want to play my stuff that's not good enough or doesn't sound as good as the Billy Higgins stuff. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing is that, um, you know, I didn't, of course, I didn't get into too big of a head trip about it. I think, as you said, you you made a good point. You said something about maturity. Now, I think about this often, like some people seem to have this sensibility where they can distill all their influences very quickly and out comes themselves, Mm -hmm. you know in a distinctive way and others have a way of utilizing their influences, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound like they've really distilled them into themselves. It sounds like they're still playing basically in a derivative way. So I'm conscious of this because at 54 years old, I've been um, fortunate, you know, to draw, from this well of incredible music, you know, primarily, you know, you talk about all the great black drummers that have influenced the music since the beginning, since it started. So, you know, going back to people like Papa Joe Jones and Sid Catlett, all the way up through the lineage, it's like, if I've heard something and I liked it, it's like, I'm going, I like that. I'm going to take it, right? Or I'm going to use it. So, that's inevitable. That's how, that's how we learn the language, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And whether you do it through transcription in a very studied kind of methodical way, or you do it just by sort of assimilation or osmosis as one band teacher used to call it, right? <laughs> you know, where it just sort of seeps in because you're listening to the music so much that these things like listening to language so much, you start picking up colloquialisms, even if you don't aren't fluent in the language. Right. So, you know, that's a thing for like a lot of younger drummers. They may not be fluent in the language, but they're using slang, let's say, or they're using bits that they've learned, but they don't really know the grammar or have the syntax, the whole thing down. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think an analogy there that's important. Um, So to be able to speak a language colloquially in a colloquial way and be able to converse and feel relaxed and confident. You don't have to know everything about the tech, the the full, all the technique, as it were, the grammar of the language. Right. You know, some people mm-hmm. know the grammar. They might have that down, like they really understand sentence structure and all the technical aspects of language, but they can't converse well because they don't yeah. understand the rhythm. They don't understand how to utilize slang, and that's what mm. I think a lot about drummers. You know, a lot of drummers get sort of hung up on the technical aspect or the grammar, and they never learn how to communicate with others. Doesn't play well with others, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. but, but that that's an ego problem. So does it play well with others? That's that's sort of a different topic. But what I unless they don't know how to. Unless they don't know how to. And, you know, it can be hard, man. I mean, like, um, I've had students even who display a lot of, you know, technical skill but then they have a hard time applying it in real time while playing a groove, let's say, and comping or mm-hmm. playing a groove and then playing some, you know, fours on a gig or, you know, whatever it might be. And um, it helps to emulate your favorite drummers, definitely. But at some point, I think you do have to be self-aware if it's not happening naturally. And that's the tricky thing is like, it's hard to be self-aware. It's hard to know. Like, you know, if somebody tells you, hey, man, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm hearing too much Philly Joe from you. Right. You need to be yourself. Well, how much is too much Philly Joe? I mean, like, you know, basically no one will ever be Philly Joe. Yes. So as much as I love Philly Joe and as much as I love to like throw these things around, I don't know if I'm sticking it exactly the way he did. And that's not really the point. The point is for me, it's always been, I'm not, I'm not as concerned with transcriptions. I'm more concerned with like listening, absorbing, and then sort of putting it into the mix of all the other stuff that I have in the arsenal, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's cool and I think it's great when people really study a certain master and they get everything down, like they've got the sticking, then they write it all out and it's written out. You can study that. That's just not the way I learn or that's not really the way that I feel comfortable. Me neither. You know, I'm I'm not knocking it at all. I think I, I know there's it's like the difference between visual learners and oral, you know, A-U-R-A-L learners. Mm -hmm. So I'm more of the latter. Right. Um, But as far as like, I'm sort of, see, this is when I get long winded. Um, No, this is, I mean, just so, just so everyone, like maybe people should rewind the, uh, the the podcast about what you were saying about the difference between learning the grammar and learning the sentences and then being able to actually speak. And I think that is extremely important. I talk about it a lot on the podcast and I'm people, I'm sure people are, you know, tired of hearing me talk about it, but I agree that there's a lot of technique going on. There's yeah. a lot less well, music. That, yeah. And that, and you know, and I don't want to like distract people too much from your excellent point, which I'm still trying to answer. Um, but that whole technique thing, maybe we can talk about that a little more. To For me, sure. that's a phenomenon of social media and of this need to like be noticed and recognized for how flashy and hot you are. Do you think that's where it started? Do you think it started on social media? I don't think it started on social media. I think that it's always existed, um, you know, for the most part, uh, as long as there have been drummers setting up drum sets and Mm -hmm. playing, maybe showing off for their friends and stuff. But I think it's really, like, exacerbated. It's really been – what's the word I'm looking for? It's been exacerbated by social media. I think social media makes it – it appeals to that part of our human nature that's like, I need to be recognized or I want to be recognized and I want you to see what I can do and how fast I can do it. Because so much of it is like, it's not like, look at how hard I can swing or look at how hard I can (laughs) do Although that exists, you know? The thing that I say this all the time, the thing that cracks me up though, is we all look at Steve Gadd and we look at Steve Jordan and we look at Art Blakey and we look at all these guys, Jeff Picaro, and they're like, oh, everyone's like, oh my God, they're the greatest. They found, they feel so good. They sound so good. I wish I could play like that. And then they sit behind the kit and they go, and I'm like, exactly, right? What the well, yeah, they're, you're not. There's a, there's a disconnect. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I'm not pointing fingers here. I, that's why I said it. Just it appeals to a certain aspect of of our nature. I think you know. Right. That's yeah. Um. But for anyone who's you know maybe just joining in now or or what we were talking about, I think that um, for me, I wasn't self conscious about the 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 distillation process, you know, in other words, I wasn't saying to myself, I'm going to 
take this much from Art Blakey and I'm going to take this much from Joe Morello and I'm going to take this bit that I heard Max do. And you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that was all stuff that I just sort of learned over the years by listening, listening, listening. And, and, and that's another thing. It's like, if you're really listening and learning versus um, reading and learning, I think in some ways it becomes more natural to the ear, just like with language. Like if you're amongst French speakers immersed in it and you're not immersed in a book then you're gonna get your french chops together much quicker and i think it's the same in some ways it's it's not perfectly analogous because you're in a group and everything it's not like you're in a group of drummers let's say but when you're listening to recordings you're listening to music you're not just listening to a drum track or you're not just reading a drum part that you're learning from you're actually Mm -hmm. to it in the context and it therefore kind of seeps in i think differently going in through the ear than it does through the eye so um i've listened to bonham for example as long as i've listened to most of the other drummers that are big influences however i started listening to music as a before i can remember you know two three years old because of my father he played drums and he loved Mm -hmm. jazz and he loved music so you know, let's say from the time I'm born up until I'm about 11 or 12, my heroes are great jazz drummers. I don't really know anything about rock. Then, right. I, then I see the song remains the same, and I'm blown away by the <laughs> bottom at 11 years old. And from that point, everything started to go in the rock direction through high school. But at that same time, I was like always listening to jazz, practicing at home, listening to Max Roach records, trying to figure out what he's playing Mm -hmm. on all those records. And I'm listening to Led Zeppelin's albums and Deep Purple's albums and, you know, all the rock music that I like, Boston, you know, whatever it was. It was like, and I'm trying to figure out that stuff. So, you know, you said like a dichotomy or there's like this duality. That's why. It's really because, you know, at a young age, I kind of had both of these directions that I, I wanted to take but they're very disparate directions. It's like when I graduated high school, it was like, do you want to be a rock musician and pursue that life? Or do you want to be a jazz musician and pursue that life? And they're very different. And they are. at that point, it was simply a matter of like, I want to play with, this might sound condescending, but whatever, you know, I wanted to play with the better musicians that were available and around. Mm-hmm. And, and the guys that I played with in high school, they sort of moved on with their lives and, you know, we didn't really have that opportunity. I had a band in high school. It was called Nuclear Waste. Great rock and roll trio. Nice. And, and since I couldn't play with them, I was, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to find some really great rock and roll musicians to keep going or move to California, you know, in the 80s when, you know, like that That's scene. What... And I knew a couple people who actually did, you know, and got into mm-hmm. the scene. Um, but I think the pull for me – to, to jazz music or, you know, to, to um, black American music, basically, swinging music, playing swing, you know, was stronger. Mm-hmm. So ultimately that was, that was, that was the, the thing that was like, I want to do this. Plus I started seeing so many great jazz musicians. It was a lot easier to see them on a regular basis than rock concerts. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. more expensive. It's far and few between. I could go to the jazz showcase and see Jimmy Cobb playing with Nat Adderley. I could go see Mickey Roker playing with um, Milt Jackson. I could go see Billy Higgins with Cedars Trio, you know, and the, mm-hmm. all, all the great Lewis Hayes band. Art Blakey would come through. So that by go by listening and then going out and seeing these people in person, all that stuff is coming into my head and then being processed. I'm 19, 20 years old. And I think that my way of, of learning and developing is a bit different than a lot of other musicians who go through the academic scene. You know, now you're saying I'm, just the, the immersive experience that you had. Yeah. Yeah. And getting to know and meet some of these great, you know, musicians, even if it's just saying hello and shaking someone's hand. But mm-hmm. just that influence of being in the presence of the music versus always, if you're in school, you're in the presence of the music too. And hopefully you're in a place where there's really inspiring teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know guys who have studied with Billy Hart, let's say, you know, in Michigan. And it's life changing. You know, yeah. it, it defines the direction. So if you have that and you're young, 18, 19, 20, right out of high school into college, you've got someone who becomes a mentor and there are many of them, you know, sometimes there's only one or two, sometimes there's 10. I don't know. All those things are factors. They're variables that factor into how, how quickly, let's say, or how soon is your personality musically going to come to, to, to bloom Mm -hmm. with all the influences that you have. Yeah, because I know for a fact that any great artists, you know, like people like Billy Hart, for example, they're going to inspire their students to think creatively. They're right. not going to say, "Just copy what I do, man. This is how I do it exactly. <laughs> yeah. You do this, and here's the blueprint. Great. You'll be fine." <laughs> exactly right. No, the blueprint is the blueprint is really rough in some ways. The blueprint yeah. is just sort of like, "Here's a few shapes." Now you do something with it. And it's it's a person's own, I think, aesthetic that comes into play at that point. It's like, do I want to obsess over learning everything that's played by my favorite people exactly and then only play that way on the gig? When you hear cats who play that way, you know it. You can yeah. tell them. Yep. You know, it doesn't sound natural. It sounds it sounds analytical, you know, and they might be killing. They might be like really technically great and sounding really great. But there's some like I would rather hear somebody who just has a great feel and a great sound and then goes from there. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. yep. But as far as like playing like your influences. Yeah, sometimes, you know, might be playing a messenger's tune and I'm. I'm emulating Blakey the best I can, but it's a, it's always going to be, like I said, a, a pale comparison, mm-hmm. um, but it's still, it's fun. So if you do it with the right spirit too, that's the other thing. I think if you right. have the right attitude or spirit, like you're not taking yourself too seriously because let's face it, man, you're not the originator of that. He's the no. originator. But on the other hand, he's the originator, but somebody influenced him. Mm-hmm. Somebody influenced Tony. And we all know who those people are. Those people are Jimmy Cobb, Alan Dawson, whom he studied with, Roy Haynes, you know, Boston's finest. But 
he's he's like that freakish example, like unbelievable assimilation at an early age and then creative adaptation. Mm-hmm. So it's like the assimilation process is quick. There's a huge amount of natural talent, but also I'm sure a lot of time dedication. It's not just right. like, I'm just going to sit back and let all these influences, you know, come out. It's like, you know, he was working on, there's an interview. I believe there's a, a quote that I read not too long ago where Tony talks about how he would play. He would try to play just like Art Blakey, or he would hmm. try to play just like Max for a while. Have you ever seen that? No, no. If I find it, I'll send it to you, but it was, I would love to see it. Yeah. It was so revelatory because it's one of it, it's, it's, you know, arguably the the drummer that people cite as being the most inventive at a young age, right? Tony Williams. Right, right. Who's right. more inventive and original than Tony? You know, I'm going to say this about John Bonham and in, in the same, so you say, you know, Bonham's a jazz, he's it's like he's a jazz drummer. Yes, in, in many respects, because here's an example. Bonzo was 19, uh, let's see, 1968. He was 20 when they recorded the first album. And the very first song on the very first album is Good Times, Bad Times. Mm-hmm. And that drum beat, have you ever heard a drum beat like that? No. I no. never heard anyone play that, as, especially before. You know, the way he integrates the bass drum part and the snare, riding on a cowbell. I mean, the whole thing is just like, where did this come from? Right. right. Well, and we could, we could make stabs at where it came from, but he's 20. And he played that. He, that was his opening statement to the world. Like, here I am, you know, and it's just he's another one, a phenomenal assimilation and adaptation at a young age. He started mm-hmm. really playing drums as a, as a young teenager. Yeah. And he, he got his first kit when he was like 15 or 16. So that's five years before the Zeppelin's first album. That's crazy. I mean, that's what I started playing drums when I was 15. So I understand like exactly how old he was or how young he was, depending on which way you you want to look at it. If you want to look at parallels, even though, you know, they're very different people and different stylists, Tony Williams, 16 in Boston, loves Blakey, loves all the greats, has seen them, is assimilating what he's seen and hearing, studying with Alan Dawson. Boom, 17, 18 years old, playing with Miles. There he is. It yeah. sounds like Tony Williams. Yeah. Here are the influences, but it sounds like Tony. John Bonham, 16 years old, gets his drum set, starts kicking around with local bands. I can only speculate, but he's he loves Krupa. He loves Morello. He hears Buddy Rich. He hears Art Blakey. He hears Elvin playing triplets. Maybe he hears Ginger Baker playing triplets, and, and he hears Elvin. Yeah. But all of a sudden, boom, he comes out at 20 years old, you know, and even maybe younger, 19, but he just didn't make a famous record yet, got his own sound, has got his own style and feel, and it's informed by great black drummers, basically, soul yep. music. Yeah. His, you can hear all the soul music, Al Jackson, you know, you can hear Purdy in there, you can hear Earl Palmer big time, you know, these great drummers mm-hmm. with a feel and a great sound. But... He sounds like himself at 20. So he quickly, that's what I mean by assimilation and adaptation. I feel like I've just landed on some goofy little catch, you know, term here. I like it. But it is, it is. It's it's what we do. It's what we do. It's what we have to do. 
is that the, I mean, th- this is like the age old question of, of talent versus skill, right? Like there's, they obviously had some sort of natural talent, you know, that they're just born with, no, but no. how, but how much of it, you know, how, how old, I mean, we, we talked about Bonham already. He was 15 when he started playing. So pretty old comparatively to other drummers that you look at that are like, Oh, they started playing when they were three or four or five. Right. Um, like Tony. Yeah. Like Tony. Yeah. Right. So how much of it is skill and how much of it is, is talents that they're just born with? I don't know. <laughs> well, where do you stand on the talent or, or skill side? I, of the I, my feeling is um, without, without dedication, without dedicating time, you know, basically mm-hmm. hours and hours of listening, shedding, you know, of, of assimilating, you know, right. that's, that's the assimilation part. You got to yeah. do something with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have all the talent in the world. And then if you don't work hard, at developing the grammar part, you know, of learning the language, then I don't know, you might be a really talented semi one dimensional or, you know, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, like not, not, not have a whole lot of depth. Sure. You know, yeah. Um, shallow that, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. on, on the other hand, if you don't have natural talent, you know, you could, I think, I think you do, everyone has to work hard, you know, to achieve mastery. Mm -hmm. Um, But with, in the absence of, of, and then now this gets like touchy, see, because, (laughs) you know, you you don't want to insult or discourage people. On the other hand, you've got to be realistic. You know, if somebody's Mm -hmm. tall enough, they shouldn't be playing an instrument. Right. 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 So no no amount of like um, studious effort and dedication gonna get you there. is is going to get you there unless it fixes that tone deaf problem. Right. So if you got someone who's got a bad feel, let's say they just have a bad feel. I'm just saying, like you know, right. No matter what they do, they might have a bad feel. And we all have been around musicians. This goes back to that thing again of who can speak the language technically very well, but it just doesn't feel good to play with them. Why? Right. Is that, is that my, is that me? Maybe it's me. Maybe other people go, man, he, I, you know, it feels fine to me. I can play with right. him. You know, there might be bass players like that, that I play with. Yeah. Not any names. <laughs> I get in trouble, you know, for even saying it, but, but the truth is, you know, you encounter people even socially that they might be very intellectual. They might be really, highly educated and they're just a drag you know yeah. you can't click with them you can't connect there's something about the way they don't play well with others let's say but right. I, that's but but that's me i have to check myself because that's me putting the blame on them that's me saying well it's their problem yeah, yeah, yeah they can't swing because what or they can't socialize because what they're dragged to hang out with you know they're dragged to talk to um yeah. I mean, but sometimes that is the case, you know, that they're that everyone agrees that this person is a drag to talk to or hang out with or be on the bandstand with or or whatever. So you yeah. cut and run. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. And you look for those people that you have chemistry with. Obviously, as a musician, sure. what we aim for, we want to play with people that we feel good playing with, not 
just, and I don't mean good like they make it easy. Right. Because that's always great to make people make mm-hmm. it make you sound good, right? But people who can also challenge you in a way that feels good. Like yeah. I've played with plenty of people where it's like I know what I'm getting my ass kicked, but they're not being unkind to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm learning something by being in their presence. Yep. I played with some musicians that I was just like, you know, quite frankly, I was like shocked. I was like, why am I playing with Hank Jones? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, and Hank was so kind and gracious and everything. And especially at that age, like, boy, I wish I could have had the opportunity to play with him as a more mature musician. You know, I was in my twenties then, let's say. Right. You know, or, or near 30. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's fully mature. I mean, you should have your shit together by the time you're 30, obviously. Oh, sorry about the, expletives is that okay on the oh that's perfect oh yeah Yeah. okay that's perfectly fine (laughs) not for not for kids only no okay so um as if kids don't use expletives no but i just mean like like with hank you know i would sometimes be sitting there playing i'm thinking man this is elvin's brother like what am i doing here you know yeah (laughs) like psych me out but he was never it wasn't like a you know he was rolling his eyes or going oh man this guy I can't wait till this gig's over, you know, and I've been around some people who are like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but the fact is still, I learned so much, even though I felt so underqualified at times, you know, so it's not just about feeling comfortable and like, Oh, I feel really good playing. I only want to play with people that I'm comfortable with. I want to play with people that I'm not necessarily comfortable with sometimes, but that are, are going to be kind and you know gracious in in their with their artistry so that i can learn something right so that i'm not being belittled or made to feel like you know oh man you're just not getting it you know mm-hmm. yeah you got to get something from the gig right it's got to be the music it's got to be the experience it's got to be whether this person is pulling you up to their level and and you're learning something on the gig or you know what it's like all these guys on the bandstand may not be that great of players but they're all amazing people and i love all of them and we're just like we're just having some fun 100 percent. then there's you know? that exactly because there's there's a lot of times where it's like that too or you might get that mix that's the incredible thing about music man there's such a mix mm-hmm. you might be a band with five people you know you're playing with a sextet or you know whatever it is and two are beyond it's always going to be that way actually two are going to be beyond your level and three are going to be let's say below your level right, right. or you consider you know to be like you're at a more advanced place. Mm-hmm. But if the chemistry is right, you can have a great time and you all are kind of learning from each other about how to make something, how to create something that's going to sound good. Because ultimately right. that's what you want to do. You want the audience, if you're playing for an audience, which we, we should be, um, you want them to leave feeling good. Mm-hmm. You know, like they enjoyed the show. Now, people aren't going to enjoy the show if there's strife, if there's tension, you know, if there's somebody vibing because he feels like, you know, these guys are below me, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> they feel someone feels nervous because somebody's like, oh, my God, he hates how I play. And yeah, you know, like all that kind of head trippy, you know, stuff. I think um, the mark of a great musician, too, is if if you have someone who's on the gig who you're obviously outclassing them, that you that you support them and, and pull them up 
to your level and and sort of bring them along for the ride. I mean, I've definitely been on many, many, many stages where I was the worst player on the stage by a lot. And, you know, and guys just like pull you up. You know, and they there there's not like you said, there's not like eye rolling and being like, oh man, it's like, well, first of all, you hired me for this gig, so you shouldn't have hired me if you didn't want to play right. with me. But like, yeah, absolutely. But uh, just that that mentorship and just like you know pulling the, pulling the person up to that level and being supportive, and you walk off stage and they're like, hey man, you sound great. You may want to work on this thing or you know dig into this a little bit. And you're like, I I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, which is constructive honesty and. And, and I do find that there's a lot of reactivity. Um, and I don't know if this is just because I'm a little older now, you know, <laughs> right? Um, or it's a byproduct of certain aspects of like, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, political correctness. And I don't mean political. Mm-hmm. I just right. mean like social correctness. It's like there's so much sensitivity now to criticism. And I think it runs through academia and there are a lot of you know financial reasons for that right um where a lot of musicians that i know whom i respect say you know you got to be careful you can't you know you can't even like kind of firmly criticize someone's playing or the choice that they make you know for fear of like being abusive or something or feeling like it's just it's too much, you know, and I mean, yeah. we all we all have been in those situations where we learn from people who care about the music, you know, and that's that's really the most important thing. It's like when you're around any master, they care about the music, you know, yeah. it's, it's sacred, really. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're self-indulgent, especially if, if you're doing something that's really egregious, like it's one thing to be sort of ignorant like you just didn't know it better, right? But when you should know better, or you're being self indulgent. Now that's a that's a whole other thing, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and there may have been time, you know, where times where we overstep a boundary, you know, that way, like mm-hmm. we're much in our own headspace, we're not listening, not paying attention, and get a firm criticism on the bandstand or off the bandstand, you know. Yep. Yep. Um, You got to have some thick skin to be able to handle that, man. Yeah. Get ready for the new Promark. Promark is reintroducing itself with two new performance pillars. Promark, the home of their rear-weighted, performance-driven rebound and finesse lines, and Promark Classic, a celebration of the timeless feel, look, and straight-ahead performance of Promark's golden era. It doesn't matter which pillar you choose because every pair of Promark sticks is perfected with ProMatch. Only ProMatch ensures unrivaled consistency of weight and pitch from stick to stick and pair to pair. Also, ProMark shows its commitment to the environment with Play, Plant, Preserve. Promark is planting trees with every pair of sticks sold. They've already planted approximately 600,000 trees back to the Tennessee soil, and they're not stopping there. When you play Promark, you're playing the only drumstick out there made from sustainably sourced and replanted wood in keeping with their vision for a net neutral future. For more information, visit Promark.com. Analog sound for a digital world is finally here. 
Sonar has transformed the original sonar sound look and feel of the 50s, 60s, and 70s drums into a contemporary concept called the Sonar Vintage Series. Complete with an updated teardrop lug design, round bearing edges for warm, deep, low-end tone, a reissue of the classic iron-shaped bass drum bracket, and exciting finishes, the Sonar Vintage Series is the obvious choice for anyone who has one eye on the past and one eye on the future. For more information, visit sonar.com. I mean, the flip side of it, too, is that you should welcome, I mean, as long as it's not destructive criticism, where no, you get no, to the bandstand no. and they're like, you sound like shit and you're horrible. And, you know, that, of yeah. course, you don't want to be playing in, 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 uh, you know, bands with people like that. But a lot of times, like I would, you know, I would walk off stage and, and I would ask someone like, Hey, like, you know, how did I sound? Or, and they're like, Oh man, you sound great. And I'm like, well, that doesn't do anything for me. Like, give me, give me some real feedback. Right. And, and, know more. and yeah. people are hesitant sometimes you know they're like awesome. uh, yeah oh no you know you're good man you're good no give me something like what okay well i'll tell you this you know and it's like yeah oh great i i need that i need that how am i supposed to get better if you're not going to give me constructive you know you don't get any better walking off stage and everyone telling you you're the greatest drummer in the world what right. does that do for you you know right, right. not that right. anyone's ever told me that but you understand what i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Never once has anyone uttered, uttered those words to me. Oh, but, come on. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean. You know, you play yeah. at a gig and, uh, you know, you walk off and there's people who are listening and they're like, oh, my God, you're so great. You're amazing. And you're like, I appreciate it. Right. Doesn't I help me grow. In, in an academic setting where you have master apprentice type thing going on, mm-hmm. student, you know, student teacher, teachers should be able to, like coaches, say, you realize that sucked, don't you? Right. You know, and if, and if it's done in a way that is, you know, I don't know about using the word love, but if it's done with a, um, like tough love, yeah, tough love, like like like, I don't mean love affection. I mean like a a a, a, a an extreme valuing of the subject. So the subject mm-hmm. is music, and if specifically it's drums. The subject is drums. And, and, you know, that's where that whole, um, you know, holding in the highest regard and respect for the music first comes into play. Someone, a, a, a young musician has to be able to listen to the constructive criticism of their teacher. Otherwise, yeah. it's almost like what what is the teacher doing other than, uh, you know. Hand-holding? Uh, Handholding, demonstrating, and handholding—that's yeah. not that's not it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's part of it. You might need to hold someone's hand if they fuck that they break down in front of you. Yeah. And say, I'm yeah. the worst ever. I suck. I'll never be. You know, and which can be manipulative. But let's say it's honest. Let's say mm-hmm. somebody honestly is just like crushed now. They just can't get this concept. Let's say, and they've just had such a hard time, and. It, a great teacher will guide them through that time. Right. But a great teacher will also know when to push someone and say, look, you can do better. You know, mm-hmm. that was sad. And it's it's okay to say something was sad or lame or whatever the language is. I just, to me. So maybe this is all evolving beyond me and I'm not, you know, 
I'm going to be gone in, in however many years. And one right. day people are going to say, man, you know, it was really uncool for people back then. They, can you believe they used to tell, you know, teachers used to tell their students they sounded lame or they, used to <laughs> they sounded sad. Oh, my God, really? That is so wrong. It's like, right. come on, man, you know, get a thick skin, will you? Like, yeah. if you think about sports, <laughs> you know, like coaches just ream out their, their, their team if they yeah. screw up. Yeah. If you're on a hockey team and you're not passing, you're going to get cussed out when you get back to the bench. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying you should cuss someone out in front of the band. You know, it's music. It's not sports. Right. You know, it's right, not right, a right. gladiator thing. You know, we're not trying to kill the other team, the opponent. We're trying to play <laughs> together. On the other hand, you're trying to play together, but you got to have respect for the people you're playing with. I think some musicians are trying to kill the other players. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially on social media, right? Yeah, of course. I will out chop you to the death. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's thumbs up, thumbs down. That's what. That's that. This is social media. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Did you that's like it. it or not? Yeah. You know. I mean, I how, you know, how do you how do you seek out that that uh, that tough love as we were saying? I mean, you like you need someone to tell you something sucks. You need someone to be honest with you and say, this is good. This is not good. You know, like I, I, there's, and a lot of times, man, like I've had, you know, I remember one time in particular, we were talking about the DeFrancesco's and Johnny DeFrancesco and I were in the studio and like, we had a kind of heart to heart conversation where he kind of like laid some shit out for me and was like, this ain't happening. And, and like, like you said, like you got to get your shit together a little bit. And I went home and he literally like called me the next morning and he was like, are you okay? Like, I just like, we got pretty, we got pretty heavy last night. And, and yeah, you know, and I was like, no, I was like, that was like, it was like someone opened the door for me and, yeah. and gave me but all this. Information. You that we really cared by calling you the next day too. Correct. You know? Correct. Yeah. I mean, and that's the, that's, that's the key thing is like, if the person really cares, um, they will usually show it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's, it's one thing to just dismiss someone and, and, you know, make them feel belittled and then that's it. And you can right. kind of tell when someone cares, but here's where it gets uh, interesting to me. I think that with the advent of trophy culture, social media approbation, all the stuff that has in the last 20 years, I think really kind of, um, change those dynamics mm-hmm. I think a lot of young people are accustomed to the plastic trophy you know what i mean yeah and yep. and not being told you kind of sucked in that last game right you know, right like the participation award kind of mentality <laughs> we don't keep score <laughs> we don't keep score exactly right. there's you know and 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 here's your award for participating and all those things it's like at a certain point man that's damaging to the to, to the uh to the it, it's it, it does damage to the to the student you know in terms of their ability to handle constructive criticism and it does eventually damage to what's being pr- presented out here as art yeah because it starts lowering the standard you know it just like keeps sort of bumping down bumping down like well there's room for everyone no there's not honestly there's not room for everyone there's room for those who have talent and put in the hard work, the dedication, and are sensitive to what is going on around them. 
mm-hmm. you know. But unfortunately, there, you know, I should I should correct myself. There is room now because on social media, and even in academia, it's like it's all good. You know, you could do you could try your best, but if if it if it kind of sucks, that's okay because we're still going to present it as though it's something really great. Right. And that's unfair, man. That's I, I think that, that that is wrong. I think mm-hmm. that right. there has to be standards. And there are standards mm-hmm. in sport. That's what I mean about sports. It's like sports don't lie. It's like you either you're either making your stats are up or they're not, right? Like you either are are achieving and showing that you got it or it's gonna come to bear soon. Right. Right. And and the team can't afford to coddle at that level, you know, the, the, the era of the plastic trophy is now gone when you, you yep. know, you become an adult and it's the same with music. You know, the plastic mm-hmm. trophy thing was for beginner band and participation awards in their little chorus or whatever jazz chorus, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't really know anything about jazz music or singing, but I'm in the jazz chorus. And therefore, you know, I got a participation award. That's great, but you can't now. If you're going to go to college as a jazz vocal major, you better really get your stuff together and start mm-hmm. learning the language of the music, not just yep. based. You know, and that that's where the hard reality will, I should come crashing down. If you if your ego has been swollen by all the likes that you get and by all the little awards that you got, you right. know. Yep. But, but it, it, it's changing, I think. And I hear this from, I don't teach in academia in, in, in you know, on the university level or even high right. school. I take some private students from time to time. Um, but I, but I hear this from very, you know, highly esteemed musicians who teach that it's becoming increasingly harder for them to, st- that there's so much politics that they have to play. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know they don't want to discourage enrollment. Yeah, and and, yeah. and that's all about that. All about that green. Yeah, and, and see, I don't like that association with with the music with jazz. You know, that, that sucks. Yeah, I agree. I it may be a necessary thing to deal with in these coming years, unless there's a backlash to it. Yeah. Um, you know, it because it affects us professionally. It's like now, let's say. I want to book a gig at a coffee shop in town that is having live music. And they don't know me because they don't really know. They don't know my pedigree. They don't know who I played with. Right. You know what I mean, I could, I could be anybody. I could be a, a 20, a 20 year old undergrad student. Uh, I mean, they, it's almost like apples, you know, apples and, and oranges or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like, um, you know, so I have to like, compete with somebody who has no experience and doesn't, you know, like have, have the skill set to be able to really play, you know, at a high level, but they're going to be playing the same gig. So professionally now I'm like, I got to be out here competing with people. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, yeah. I mean, I would argue that the, but how do you get, how do you get experience without getting experience? You got to get the experience. I'm okay with that, but it's it's like the just because you went to the school doesn't mean you have experience. I agree. And that's well, hundred percent. That's so true of so many aspects of education. So you come out with a bachelor's degree in something, 
but no experience. So that, you know, can't be, and even a master's degree. You know, I think there's a lot of musicians that feel like they've gone through school, so therefore they're done. And it's like, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this with school. I mean, I got a business degree and where I learned business was working in my family's business and then running my own businesses. And I mean, I don't think there's anything that I use that I learned in college business wise now in, in my business. I was just talking about this. My son just turned 23 yesterday and we were Mm -hmm. talking, he just finished his undergrad and you know, um, exactly what you just said you know it was a conversation that we had that was that basically that exemplifies it it's like you know as a musician um who comes out of school with a performance a master's in performance let's say you still have to get if you haven't already gotten that bandstand training or real life experience otherwise it's it's almost like you may as well have got a degree in something else. I know. Part of me is like, <laughs> if I have kids, I like I would be like, okay, look, it's going to cost me 50, 60, 70, 80 grand for you to go to college, right? So here's what I'll do. I'll give you 50, right? And for the next, if you want to be a musician, I'll give you 50 and you got to make that last for the next, whatever, two years and just go out and play music. Right. For the next two years. <laughs> Just go out and get gigs. Just and... don't move to New York because you'll spend it all in two months. <laughs> yeah, don't move to New York. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, and just go and go play gigs and try to make a living playing music. And if you need some extra bread, you got that money in the bank that, that I would have spent on your college. And you can just, you can go do that and try it for two years. And if it doesn't I work. We're laughing about this and it's humorous, you know, like. Oh, no, I'm being serious. This. But no, like I, I know you are. I would and totally I do. do. Or if just, I, if, I, I think a lot of people probably feel this, but don't give voice to it often. Yeah. You know, because, and again, because of the, the a lot of a lot of musicians have to um, find some way of earning other than playing gigs, because playing gigs, you know, it's just not that lucrative most of right. the time. Right. I mean, and I and. And just so we're clear, like I got a minor in music too, and I learned a lot in school. I learned a lot in music. I mean, like there was a really, those four years were, there was a lot of growth that happened there, but nothing there prepared me to go out and get gigs or to play music professionally. And I think that's the thing that pisses me off about, about academia is that they, I don't feel like they're teaching a lot of like real world skills. To well, go out and actually do it. Yeah, I'm not experienced enough with like the the vast range. I mean, there's so many schools, so many different, you know. Right. Of, but I, I agree with you in, in general. And I would just also say that I feel that it's a bit misleading mm-hmm. when it comes to performance degrees. Right. It, it's, it's, it's a bit misleading and, and you know, sort of like um, encouraging a bit of a, 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 a dream or a fantasy. You know, and I don't mean having a career in music is a fantasy. Right. I just mean that if you do this for four years, you're going to come out and, you know, you'll be you'll be ready to play gigs. Now, on the other hand, you should be ready to play some gigs if you come out in four years. But there's so many people who go through a pro an undergraduate program and they can't even convincingly play through a blues yeah. and navigate like alternate changes on a blues or on a standard. Well, 
I'm talking mm-hmm. about instrumentalists. Not, I mean, you know, not drummers, but um, but with drummers, it's the same. It's like a lot of cats can't just even basically groove and know how to shape a song, you know, know how to uh, make it sound different between, you know, for each soloist, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, know how to use dynamics that are, these are like the sort of like the, um, you know, the fine points, like mm-hmm. know when to take initiative and when to listen and leave space, you know, right. those kind of things. Um, and then there's all the other stuff that you're talking about, like the whole business side of it, like how to just how to navigate the real world scene of trying to be a freelance musician. Right. And there were, I mean, and when I was in college, there were none of the, I mean, unless you took a business course, there were no, there was no like music business course. There was no understanding how to, how to save your money or, or taxes or any, or how to charge for your services or how to promote yourself or how to market yourself. I mean, there was none of that. Right. It was like, we're going to, we'll teach you how to play this Bolero. And then like, all right, you're on your own. Like go out and try to figure it out. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't really know, like in terms of performance, if it a lot of it has to do with like preparing for recitals, preparing for concerts, um, which all makes sense. You know, it's like working toward a performance. Right. So you're kind of like workshopping on how you rehearse, how you plan, how if it's original music, how you arrange it, how you're going to, you know, rehearse it how it's going to be in, in, in preparation for an actual performance, which would be a recital. Mm-hmm. So all of that stuff is important. Um, but a lot of what we do in real time as, at least as jazz musicians is going into a situation with people and making something happen on the spot. It's not always about like, you know, a prearranged writing, writing your own music, you know, original music or arrangements of standards. And um, what am I trying to say here? Uh, it's it's like, re- you know, I look at it like it's workshopping for the real, for the real experience mm-hmm. and paying kind of a lot of money when going through a university program to do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like we said, you know, if you're connecting with real musicians and working on music in real time, um, it's important. I think it's at the very least, it's important to do both. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I, I often tell students who, who, uh, come to me and, um, I don't really have any students who are regular students. It's usually, it's like somebody says, Hey, I'd like to take some lessons. And, you know, it's a, maybe a handful of lessons, sometimes more, sometimes it's just maybe one or two. And one of those things that, you know, I think is uh, really important and missing that I find a lot of times is that, college students often don't have time to get together with other musicians and actually play. You know, they're, they're, they're busy working on their, on their, their coursework Mm -hmm. or they're working on rehearsing music for a performance. Right. You know, like there's some goal that's set and then they have to like, you know, workshop this music. Um, They have ensemble classes, whatever, but actually just like, getting together and playing, like I'll say, well, how often do you play with a bass player or get together with a bass player and another, you know, musician and just jam or just work on, you know, playing different grooves together. It's like, well, 
oh, I rarely have time to do that because of this and that. Or it's like, we really don't have a space. You know, it's hard to find. Yeah. A space. You have to like get the space through school or whatever it might be, you know, like mm-hmm. a practice room that you reserve or something. And I feel like that's such a shame because at that age, you really do need to be doing that as well as your coursework. Yeah. You know, you really have to have that experience when you're young of playing with your peers and sort of learning, stumbling together, achieving together, all the stuff that comes with playing, playing with other musicians. And in the absence of jam sessions, you kind of have to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, to me, I'm thinking about like my time in college and it feels, it feels like a broken system to me. I think that, I think that there's a lot of good that's happening uh, on the, like at the collegiate level. But then there's some, there's some holes and there's some gaps for, for me, I was already, by, by the time I was in college, I was already, pl- I was in a band and we were already like, we were already touring and stuff like that. Um, so you- uh, I went to Kutztown University. Okay. In Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So I studied with uh, Will Rapp and Dr. Frank Kumar or Dr. Will Rapp, I should say, and Dr. Frank Kumar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but I see what you mean. Like even then, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm like a negotiator. So I'm the guy who like got us to get our, our practice room to be open 24 hours a day, convince oh, them yeah. to like, give me a key for it. So like I could go whenever I wanted and all like, I kind of like you often to take that. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I think I just, wore, I just wore, I just wore them down, man. I was just like, yeah, no, that was great. Yeah. I was like, what do you mean? It's a soundproof room in a basement. Why do, why does it close at 10 o'clock? Ah, yeah. You know, like why can't I go in there at, why, or maybe it closed at eight or something. I'm like, why can't I go in there at midnight or one o'clock? At two? So what I would do is if I was out, I'd go to the bar and hang out with my friends and everything. And then I would go play drums at three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, wow. Wow. So, That's dedication. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if it was dedication. I think it was more, uh, I think it was more alcohol induced. Uh, uh, cool off. Yeah. Yeah. It was beer <laughs> muscles or something. I don't know. Sober up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but there yeah. were, I mean, there, there weren't a lot of opportunities, like you said, to grab a room and go in and jam because there was ensembles who were practicing in there. And then there were, you know, then you had all of the, the breakout room, the breakout sessions with all the other people and everything. And there's not, you, you, you do a lot of playing, but you don't do a lot of playing if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand. I mean, like as far as a, a drummer, being a drummer, I always felt like I need to play with bass players to get my time. Yeah. To, to get my time really together. Mm-hmm. You know, playing along with records is great, you know, and then, of course, practicing alone is fine with a metronome. But you have to play with a bass player because you guys, the bass player and the drummer are the ones who are playing pretty much continuously through every set. Right. Yeah. We're always moving. We're always doing this stroking, whatever it is, uh, whether it's swing or funk or what, you know, no matter the style. Mm-hmm. You So. Again, you know, I would ask students sometimes, like, you know, do you, do you get together with a bass player and play? And some sometimes like, oh, no, not really. You know, and it's like, well, you should do that. That's something <laughs> that's really important to do. You know, so I try to make that just like a, a really fundamental point. Like, um, if you haven't thought of it or you don't do it, uh, please consider doing that. You yeah. Know, finding the time to get with a bass player and just work on time, work on tempos, work on ballads, work on you know, 
400 BPM, if you can get up there, you know, everything in between, mm-hmm. you know, work on grooves, work on Latin grooves, bossa novas, you know, rumbas. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just great for a drummer and a bass player to workshop like that together, mm-hmm. practice together, basically. And, and, all of those things that you had mentioned, like trying to get up at higher BPMs or playing a bossa nova and working on, you know, you're working on different styles and things like that. A lot of the, because we're, you know, most of the people who are listening here are in the United States or, you know, obviously English speaking, and most of it's rock, you know, the stuff that you hear on the radio, it's pop, it's rock, it's all that kind of stuff. And that kind of, that that's sort of our comfort zone. No one sits down at the drums in the United States and just starts playing a bossa nova, right? They play a rock beat. So right. I think that working on all of those other working on jazz, working on a bossa nova, working on you know Afro Cuban, working on all this other stuff, is such it's such a challenge for our comfort zone that it expands our horizons and it just even if you're never going to play those styles on a gig, even if you're never going to go Absolutely. be in a salsa band, right? If you learn those things and you sit behind a kit and you're playing funk or you're playing groove or you're playing R and B, it's just going to have your it's going to help with your sense of feel, your sense of time and touch and dynamics and yeah, all your of musicianship that falls, under, falls under musicianship. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, maybe one of these days uh, we can convince everyone that that's what we need to do. And I'm guilty of it as well. Like I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying like, Oh, I got all those, you know, I had those styles figured out a while ago, but like, you you know throw me on a salsa gig and I would be in trouble. Oh, me too. Yeah, you I know? mean each each you know each genre basically has a lot of layers of depth. Yeah. And, um, but but as far as like whatever it is that you play, like you said, you know whatever kind of music that you're most comfortable playing, it'll just enrich and enhance your musicianship to have as much of a broad you know. Um, uh, sense sense of uh, the palette, you know, it's mm-hmm. all like colors on a palette. Yeah, you know, even if you have not mastered any any one of those, um, the familiarity to start with is is really you know great and important. Yeah, uh, but sometimes you know also when you when you make a discovery, then you make further discoveries. You start practicing a bossa nova beat, and then you start looking a little deeper, and then you start checking out who are, you know, drummers who had a really nice feel when playing this beat. And then you start, you know, it, it may open open up more more doors for you, mm-hmm. you know. No, and it's also a process. It's also a process of kind of like discovering what you really want to focus on or explore. And maybe not, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like you checked it out. You kind of, you know, went in on yeah. a cursory level and then you – you just realize that that's not something you want to devote that much time and focus to because there is only so much time in every day. And the older you get, the less time you have. Yeah. And I would, the only, the only uh, addition to that would be don't go into it for 10 minutes and not be able to play it and say, I don't want to learn this stuff, but also don't spend 10 years playing jazz if you hate every minute of it. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that sounds like a sentence. Actually. It does sound like a sentence for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, George, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, man. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, sharing your knowledge, sharing your wisdom, wisdom, your your candor, and you know your your transparency about these topics. And I think that you know 
need to be brought to light a lot more. So I'm glad that, that we were able to have this conversation. And what's the best ways, best place for people to follow along with what you're doing and, and your website and social media and, and all that? Well, um, I actually just kind of activated my Facebook page, which uh, it's not really a page. It's a Facebook account. But um, I did that mainly because uh, after being on Instagram for three years, I realized that I can share things from Instagram directly to Facebook there you go. <laughs> without having to really interact much on Facebook, which is fine with me. But yeah, I have a, a Instagram, just my name, George Flutus account. And uh, I enjoy posting there and interacting with people there. And I have a website, which is just simply www.georgeflutus.com. And that has uh, a section that can um, keep you up to date with what I'm doing gig wise. Uh, shows, you know, section where you can see what, where I'm playing. And that was pretty much dormant for the past year and a half. <laughs> so, I mean, I, everyone's shows page was dormant for a year and a half. Yeah, I, mean, I just basically did a quick scroll down and delete everything, and that was it for about a year. But um, last month, I just went in there and updated it, so I've got some things coming up. And, um, yeah, and that's, you know, that's about it for now. Yeah. A um, little, little bit of a social media thing and, and, and my website and yeah. And I will also on YouTube, I have the uh, channel that's devoted to John Bonham's drumming, which is called Bonhamology. Which you should check out because it's awesome. Uh, thanks a lot. It's awesome. Thank I was you. like, I mean, I went down the rabbit hole and I'm like, all right. Oh, I some work you did. Oh, okay. <laughs> a lot of I was people like, all right, I got to get some work. Done. <laughs> they don't know about that side as, as you started out <laughs> saying, you know, I love it. I love it. Well, George, thank you again, man. I really, I really do appreciate it. And hopefully, um, you know, things are starting to open back up now and, and you're out there gigging and all that. And, and glad to see that yeah. you, you, uh, you made it all right through, through the pandemic so far. And again, thank you for your time. I appreciate you and hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Nick, thanks for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. You too. There you have it, the one and only Mr. George Flutus. You can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 625. Also, if you haven't already, if you like the podcast, please leave a rating, please leave a review. Also, share it. I, I think that we underestimate how much eyes and ears we can get on something by sharing it. So if you're on social media or you know, if you're listening to an episode, just screenshot it and share it on Instagram or on Facebook and tag me in it. That would help a lot. It would let other people know about this podcast. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it. And then, you know, obviously I reshare all that stuff too. So that would be great. Just tag Drummer's Resource or you can tag me at Nick Ruffini. You can tag Drummer's Resource, me, both, doesn't matter. Uh, and that's all I got for you. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.